Okay, I think we are live. And this is just going to be a greeting to those who are joining us this morning. Good morning to one and all. Good to have you. Praying that the Lord is teaching you the gospel and praying that we speak to you and us by the same message and by the same spirit. And by way of announcement for those who shall be listening on Summon Audio or YouTube or whatever, this is going to be our last message for 2024 from here because I am going to be preparing for my trip to Kenya and Zimbabwe coming up next month. There's a lot of writing that I need to do. But when I do come back, you're going to have a ton of messages to listen to. <laughs> you're going to have, at the very minimum, 15 hours of messages to go through. So you take the time now to rest. <laughs> and if I happen to have good internet, I will share some of the messages. The issue is going to be internet access. If and when I have good internet access, I will share some messages, whether live or an upload. We have to determine depending on the strength of the connections, because I do not like bad connections. I do not like things that don't record well, but they're very disruptive to the flow of the arguments and people just get turned off and they end up not listening. Uh, so I'm religious about that. I try my best uh, to make sure that we bring very quality recordings and streams. But with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day again that you have allowed us to come around the person of Christ to huddle, as it were, at his cross as needy sinners which we are. Thank you. We huddle together as the redeemed of Christ. May we be reminded of the truth of that, that this matter of salvation has already been settled and that forever. And so we are those who have much hope in spite of the many things contrary things that may be happening in our life, even in this world. May you always cause us to look to Christ, from whom we have found refuge. Help me to speak the truth, and you speak to your people, Lord Jesus. I pray in your precious name. Amen. This morning I'm going to be in Joshua 15. We are going to be in Joshua 15, and the same message could have been preached from Judges 1, verses 12 to 15. They are the same text, almost word for word. But we're going to be piggybacking our message from Joshua 15, because that gives us a bigger context. Beginning from verse 13, 
to verse 20. And this is what Joshua recorded for us. Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord Joshua, namely Kijath Abba, which is Hebron. Abba was the father of Anak. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debi. Formerly the name of Debi was Kijath Sepha. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kijath Sepha and takes it to him, I'll give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, or Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as wife. Now it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she dismounted from a donkey and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? She answered, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. And that is the word of the Lord. And for our title, we have one title, maybe two, but related. Caleb's promise and Christ. Caleb's promise and Christ, or Caleb's promise and God's salvation. We preach the gospel from every text. As much as God will give us illumination, and we do not apologize for doing so in an attempt to make Jesus attractive, to make Jesus mild, mild and gentle and approachable. I had some conversation by way of text with someone on Facebook, on someone's wall. They were very angry that David and Bathsheba is a story of Christ and the gospel. They did not like that at all. They were very, very offended. And so my conclusion to the guy was, if the Lord would open your eyes to see it, you can never see it any other way. But for the moment, it seems, you still need repentance from self-righteousness. That's the only reason why you're mad. Because you think you have some righteousness in you that makes you a better person than David. Yeah. But our hermeneutic is Christ-centered. I'm going to take my time because it's my last message in a long while. But it's also a very good message. I mean, it's a good message, trust me. <laughs> Our hermeneutic is gospel-centered. Interpretation of the Bible stories. 
because that was God's intention in writing the script. God only has one story to tell. He only has ever had one story to tell. And it is the story of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of creation is telling the one story. It is testifying of the one person and the work of the one person. The trees, the waters, the fishes, the stars, and all things that we cannot see, the visible, invisible, they are all telling the story of the one person, Christ Jesus. And God does not ever tell the story of Christ without putting something offensive in it. And that's why when you look at even some of the fishes of the seas, they're so ugly. You're like, how did God make such an ugly thing? <laughs> it's an offense. You're thinking, man, I could not have made an ugly fish like that. <laughs> but the point is, is the offense of Christ. He is the rock of offense and the stone of stumbling for a reason. And the story of Christ, God determined to tell in the context of salvation, your salvation and mine. And salvation implies there was always going to be sin, sin, S-I-N, in God's script of humanity. Sin was part and parcel of the story. But in that story, God intended or was also going to reveal himself as he revealed his eternal purpose in the Son, his eternal purpose in Christ. So the Son is God's way of revealing himself, not just in a mount of transfiguration way of revelation, but also in a redemptive way that is through the cross and also through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now comes to all who are of God's people to reveal Christ to them. And that is why God grants repentance and faith. And this is where Israel is in the unfolding of the story of Christ. This is a timeline of the unfolding of the story of Christ. And they're at the point of entrance into the promised land. And God had given instructions as to the matter of inheritance when it came to the promised land as to who would take what portion of the land and who would not take them there. God said, you're not going to enter the promised land by way of Moses. Moses is not going to take you into the promised land because the inheritance of salvation 
is not of law, it is not of Moses, but of promise, which means it is of grace, which means it is of Christ. So in Numbers 34, God gave instructions to the allotment of the land inheritance. He gave the boundaries of the land that they were to possess, but only for the nine and a half tribes. And in the allotment of the land, there were two and a half tribes that did not cross over the Jordan. They decided to opt out because they said they had large heads of flocks, cattle, and sheep and goats, and could use the land that was outside of Israel's boundaries or borders. Hear this from Numbers 32, verse 33. Numbers 32, verse 33. So Moses gave to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country. So these are the two and a half tribes that did not cross over. And also remember the Levites did not have a land inheritance. But they were given cities. They were given 48 cities. And if you still remember, even the cities of refuge, those belong to the Levites. But this is what God had said about the Levites in Joshua 13, verse 14. And you're going to find that in a number of areas in respect of the Levites and their inheritance. Joshua 13, verse 14, God said, Only to the tribe of Levi he had given no inheritance, that is, no land inheritance, The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. So their inheritance was going to come from the temple ministry. All their food and their provisions were going to come because of the temple ministry. So God was their inheritance. Let's go to Numbers 26, 52 to 56. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot, They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. So they shall get land allotments according to the names of the tribes 
of their fathers. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers. So that is the land allotment and in the matter of salvation that is saying all those of Christ, Christ who is from Judah, they get an inheritance according to the name of Christ. In Joshua 14, in Joshua 14, God had granted or fulfilled his promise to Caleb for a land allocation or allotment because of his faith to enter and spy the promised land and to bring back a good report about that land. When he came back, he said, we saw that the land is good. We should go and possess it. And this report pleased God, unlike the report of the other compatriots who came back and said, oh man, we are like grasshoppers. I don't think we should go in. We'll get killed. Joshua and Caleb came with a good report, a report of faith, of trusting that God was going to give them the land as he had promised. But here Caleb's testimony in Joshua 14, beginning at verse 7 to 10, Caleb is going to be talking about what God had promised him in the matter of land the land that he had gone in to spy. He said, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, that is, melt in fear, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 10, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive as he said. These 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in, the dude is still feeling the same 40 years later. I wish I could say the same thing 40 years from now. So Caleb had two promises from God through Moses that he would possess the land that he had spied out and also that his days would be prolonged, that he would not die in the wilderness as did the many men of Israel who were 20 years and older 
because of their unbelief. God said, you're not going to enter into the promised land. But Caleb and Joshua, because they had a different spirit, they believed in me, they're going to enter. And that means I'm going to prolong their days. And that tells you that in this particular context, Caleb was a type of Christ. The Christ who would come and cause his people to enter into God's promised inheritance and in turn his life would be prolonged by his resurrection from the dead. That is how the life of Christ was prolonged according to Isaiah 53, prolong his years or his days and that is speaking to the resurrection of Christ. So now we enter Joshua 15. God has done the allocation of the land to two and a half tribes. Again, these were Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, Joseph from Egypt. And he has honored his land promise to Caleb. God has honored his land promise to Caleb. Now we cross over to the distribution of land with the remaining two, with the remaining nine and a half tribes now happening over the Jordan. Remember the tribes of Israel, there were 12 originally, but when Joseph went to Egypt, he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, with the Egyptian woman. And they also were counted among the, tri- the 12 tribes, hence the half. So Ephraim and Manasseh, they're half, half tribe because of Joseph. So they represent Joseph, the two of them. Okay. So that was Joseph's contribution with the two sons. But when they cross over, Judah was the first to get their allotment. They were the first to receive their land inheritance. And this also by lot, which means it was by God's doing. If it's something by lot, it means God is the one doing it. And also because they were the largest tribe of those that crossed over, they got the biggest allotment as is expected of the Lord Jesus. But Judah was surrounded by many enemies on every side. They had the Moabites on the east of their land. They had the Edomites. They had the Amalekites, and they had the Philistines. Judah thus needed more than just strong border walls and a good immigration system. Judah needed real warriors to lead and defend the nation. And so later we'll see the likes of David being raised up because they had a lot of enemies around them. And this was in keeping with what Jacob had prophesied about his sons and in particular Judah in Genesis 49, 
8 to 10. Genesis 49, 8 to 10. Jacob said to Judah, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, the Moabites, Amalekites, Edomites, Philistines. Your father's children shall bow down before you. And that is, or was, speaking to the Lord Jesus, who is going to be praised by all his brothers, and who shall be praised and is being praised by all of his father's children. And it is Christ Jesus also whose hand has been on the neck of all his enemies. Because all power and judgment has been given him. Verse 9, Genesis 49, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the law was given to Levi. The law was given to Levi. So how does then Jacob talk about a lawgiver from Judah? Because Judah was not given to mediate the law. In the Old Testament, it was Levi. But the prophecy says, a lawgiver shall be from Judah. That was in reference to Christ. To him, Shiloh, Christ Jesus, the new and higher and better lawgiver, shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, the righteousness of the people shall be this lawgiver. He is the righteousness of the people. Christ is the righteousness of his people. And he shall give a law, the law of righteousness of faith, or righteousness by faith. That is the law of Christ. The law of Christ is righteousness by faith. So, that to say, the righteousness of his people is not from them doing some moral things, but it is in the person of Christ. He is their righteousness. He is the obedience. Hear the text. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So he is the obedience of the people, of his people. He is the righteousness of his people. 
This is not saying. His people shall be made righteous by obeying him. This is saying. Christ himself, he is their obedience. Everything that is required of them in terms of obedience, it is in him. He is the obedience of the people. He is the righteousness of the people. So still on the land allotment, the land given to Judah was ideally suited to the planting of vineyards. And this is the land from where Caleb and Joshua and the other ten men of Israel who went to spy out the land, cut a cluster of grapes from Canaan in Numbers 13. So this land of Judah was known for its vineyards. Numbers 13, 27 says, Then they told him Moses and said, This is Caleb and Joshua. We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. It truly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And this is looking to Christ. And now to the fulfillment of the many vineyards and the wine production. Because you're not going to have vineyards and not produce wine. Jacob had said this in his prophecy of Judah, continuing from Genesis 49, from where we were, verses 11 and 12. Genesis 49, 11 to 12. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. And this to say, this land allotment of Judah was anticipative of the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood shedding. You get wine from the wine press. And so the blood of Christ was spilled from the wine press of God's judgment. And that is why his garments were dripping in blood, as if they were washed in blood, washed in wine. But when one, but when one enters into this land, by faith as what Caleb and Joshua did. They come back with a good report. They come back testifying of the milk and honey and its fruit. Things for which they did not labor to produce. 
they come with a good report. And that is say, those of Christ speak of what they got from Christ, the riches of Christ. Milk and honey and abundant fruit. There is abundant fruit to be found in Christ and to be found in the New Testament. And this is not in reference to fruit of the Spirit. This is in reference to the fruit of the work that Christ accomplished for his people, their total salvation. So the land allotment to Judah also encompassed the land that had been given to Caleb as God had promised Caleb through Moses. And thus Caleb was a Judahite. He belonged to the tribe of Judah. Joshua 15, 13. Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he, that is Joshua, gave a share among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kijath Abba, which is Hebron, and Abba was the father of Anak. And Joshua was a warrior. Joshua was a fearless man by what we have gathered so far. Joshua, as Caleb, was a conqueror. And he drove out the people who were there. So the testimony of Caleb is pretty much very much superimposed on the testimony of Joshua. They are almost the same kind of people as far as their qualities. They are people who know God, who have the faith of God. They are there to accomplish the work of God. They are types of Christ. Joshua 15 verse 14 Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Derbe. Formerly the name of Derbe was Kijath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kijath Sefer and takes it, to him I'll give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. So Caleb came up with a very interesting incentive program. He said, he who attacks this city and takes it. Pay attention to that. Attack the city and then take it. Conquer and overcome it. That was the condition that he set. And what will be done for them Caleb said, I will give my daughter as wife. And from here, we need to raise our theological understanding if we are going to be profited by the story. We cannot understand the story correctly if we do not cast it in the lens of God's eternal purpose in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ 
must be brought into the conversation for us to read anything correctly. So pay attention. As I said, Caleb was a fearless man, a man of high stature, a man of all. And he had a daughter. And he put a price to her, a very high price, if she should be taken by anyone for a wife. Caleb's daughter is not going to be on e-harmony or any of these dating sites to find a husband. That's not the condition. Her husband to be shall be the one who meets the one condition that was laid down by the father, that is, to go fight and capture the city. Those were the terms of marriage. Those were the terms of her to be given away. And the daughter has no say as to who shall be her husband. Not in this context, because God does not invite our opinion in the matter of salvation. The city must be captured in a fight. And when that happens, the daughter will be given to the man who leads the charge. And so we see a similar proposal Mad in the story of Saul and David, but with other details thrown in by King Saul about the matter of dealing with the threat of Goliath and the Philistines. Let's go back to, let's go to 1 Samuel 17. We have talked about this before, but it's relevant in our conversation. 1 Samuel 17, 24 to 27. You know the context. Goliath is causing trouble. (laughs) He is challenging Israel to a fight. And he does not want to fight everybody. It's like, when I waste my time, you find one capable person to represent you and bring him to me. Bring him down to come and fight me. Okay? So all of Israel is scared because of the stature of Goliath. And then David shows up and he hears about what's going on. And so that takes us to verse 24, 27 of 1 Samuel. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man Goliath, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man? They're speaking to David. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. The daughters are in trouble. They're always given in the context of war. Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. So shall it be done as has been said in verse 25. The man will get the king's daughter, great riches, and his father's house will have an exemption from paying taxes. And in First Samuel 18, verse 17, in First Samuel 18, verse 17, Saul said, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Fight for me. Fight the Lord's battles. That's your charge. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. We have explained gospel-wise what that was talking about. But our point of going there is this. The man who kills Goliath will get what? They would be given the king's daughter great riches, and their father's house will not pay taxes. And that to say Saul was a type of God the Father in this instance. He is the man who has a daughter to give away at a very high price. But the daughter to be given as a prize for the man who could solve some outstanding issues for the king. Kill the Philistine. In the death of the Philistine, the king was satisfied as to give away his daughter. Because the daughter is never given to a man who can't fight. A man who can't provide, a man who can't defend her. And that is speaking to the qualifications of Christ. God did not give the church to a man who could not provide for her, could not defend her from all her enemies that are pictured in the stature of Goliath, of sin, death, condemnation, the devil, you name it. And in the case of Caleb, he demanded that this city... Derby, be captured. The man who can capture the city proved, would prove that he was a worthy man for his daughter. That's the test. Is he a real man? But what could that be a picture of? Of the city that is being captured I believe it was a picture of the covenant of the law because later when the city was captured, I think in First Chronicles somewhere, it was given to the Levites. That city, that covenant must be captured by way of fulfillment, by a man who is capable of doing it. 
And in return, the conquering man would get himself the daughter of Caleb. They then can take selfies and put them on Instagram and Facebook. But you have to end. I believe also that the city represented all things that Jesus needed to come and subdue. Whatever it is that Christ had to come and subdue was also represented in the testimony of the city. It needed to be subdued. But this tells us that Caleb's daughter was no ordinary girl that such a high price was put for anyone who wanted to marry her. And this saying, everything said, that the church is the daughter of the father and that she is not ordinary. The church is not an ordinary daughter. By reason of who owns it, who chose it. We may be regular people like everybody else, but we are not ordinary by reason of who our father is. And the church is not just going away for free. There must be a qualified man to go and fight, fight and win, capture the city, fight and kill Goliath, defeat the Philistines, resist sin, to the point of the shedding of blood because that alone was the condition to possess the church. And this was the charge that was given to the man, Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus understood that for him to possess the bride, he had to come and fight, even to his death. Death was always the condition for him to possess the church. The scriptures would, to that effect, come and say in Acts 20, verse 28. Paul speaking to the Ephesians elders. Acts 20, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So the church was just not made by election. Chosen in Christ to be the daughter of the father, but it was also chosen to be the bride for Christ. The church is a daughter, but it's also the bride. The daughter of the father, but the bride to the son. But to be possessed by Christ when he came to fight sin and to defeat sin, to remove the condemnation, to defeat the devil, 
to fulfill the law. And that to say, the daughter, even though she was chosen, the daughter, even though she was loved, she still needed to be paid for. She needed to be purchased and justified from the slave market of sin. She did not have a good wedding gown to wear for her wedding. Everything else that she may have been wearing is thrift store stuff. She needed to have a daughter of such stature needed a better garment for her wedding. And so Christ had to come and spill his blood and provide her with the garments of his righteousness. Because Jesus does not do weddings on the cheap. <laughs> Jesus does not do weddings on a budget. How do we know that? First Peter 1, 17 to 21. Peter said, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is your wedding gown. This is your righteousness. That's what you are wearing without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you and that's speaking to God's eternal purpose and saying Jesus was not plan B. This was always the plan. To bring a people to himself through his own death. Who through him believe in God, verse 21, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Not in the law, in God. So now the daughter has the clothes for her wedding. And they're dripping in the blood of the lamb and yet spotless and above reproach. So this is very important to understand that in the eternal purpose of God, the bride of Christ was already known who it would be, and all the names written in the book of life. We cannot increase the number of people that belong to Christ. Just as when Job lost his daughters, his children, his children, sorry, at the very end of the book of Job, Job 42, he recovered the same number. We do not increase the number of the elect by preaching. <laughs> we are only calling the number of the elect. 
But there was a condition that was stipulated that Christ was to come and meet to fulfill in his flesh before he could take possession of her. He must die and capture the city. Also, the daughter of the king had issues. She had seen issues. And she needed some cleaning up before her full adoption. So let us continue to hear the unfolding of the story. Going back to Joshua 15, verse 17. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave him Achsa, his daughter, as wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Kenaz, who was the brother of Caleb, took the challenge and went to war and took the city. He led a very successful expedition and conquered the city. And there are two or three things here to consider. Othniel means the lion of God. And that tells you that Othniel was a type of Christ, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. Othniel was a Judahite. So he would have been a conquering lion of the tribe of Judah in a type. And that makes Caleb a type of God the Father in this particular part of the story. Because he has a daughter to be given away, but to be given away in the context of a war and to be married to the conquering lion of God of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in typology, for the sake of those who do not get to hear as much typology like some of us do, one person can carry the testimony of the different persons of the Godhead. One person, depending on the story, can be God the Father, can be the Son, can be the Holy Spirit, and there could be any other kind of testimony or aspect of the gospel. It is the particular context that drives what God is teaching about. So we have been seeing that Saul is the king of Israel. He is uh, a type of God the Father. He has a daughter to give away, but also he's a type of the law because he's going to bring a lot of abuse and suffering to God's people. But hear this about Othniel again. He became the first judge of Israel. Othniel became the first judge of Israel to deliver them from their troubles. Because Christ Jesus is the first judge to truly deliver God's people from their sins. And for that, let's go to Judges 3. Judges 3, beginning at verse 7 to 10. Judges 3, 
Judges 3, 7 to 10 says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you were to look for just that line in the Old Testament, I think you want to come up with more than 200 areas, places where it says, So the children of James did evil in the sight of the Lord. (laughs) They did evil in the sight. Well, that's what we do. What did they do? They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs, idols. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. God sold them into slavery, into oppression. It is God who did it. It is God who sold all humanity into the bondage of sin and law. That's the larger point. Sin and law are what brings the ultimate slavery on the human condition. And God is the one behind it. And the children of Israel served Kushan Rishathim eight years. For what purpose? Verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, so God is he who caused them to cry out to him. Because no one cries out to God by themselves. Just as what had happened to Israel when they were in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord after 430 years. Why wait for 430 years if you know how to cry out by yourself? (laughs) Because you only cry out in the God-appointed time. He causes us to cry out to him. And when that happened, the Lord raised up a deliverer, a savior for the children of Israel, who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's young brother. So here we are given more details to the person of Othniel. He is the lion of God who becomes the first judge and also the deliverer of God's people from their oppression and their enemies. And that to say he was a type of Christ. And God never raised a person to do something and have them fail in the very thing that he caused them or the very thing that he raised them to do or to be. It is impossible because he is the one behind it. And if we fail at anything, it is not because God failed, but that failure was part of our story. That's what God wanted us to be and to do in that particular context. And if we succeed, it is again not because of our diligence, but because God determined for us to succeed in that endeavor, whatever it is. And if God has determined to serve us, We shall be saved and we are saved because that's what he determined to do. So God raised the Lord Jesus as our deliverer and he succeeded in his mission of salvation. And that is why he is now seated on the right hand of power 
Verse 10 of Judges 3, I think. Yep. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, came upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Kushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. So he even defeated this king, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathim. And that is say, the Lord Jesus Christ went out to war, and his hands on the cross prevailed over all those and all that which had overtaken his people. That's what a God-given Savior does. He delivers his people from whatever. And that's Christ Jesus. So Othniel took the city. And that means the Lord Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but he also redeemed, he ransomed, he delivered, he reconciled, he perfected, he justified all his people from their sins. That's what a deliverer does. (laughs) And it happened on Mount Calvary. The Lord Jesus took the city. He did not make a negotiation to take the city. He took it. And when he had finished taking it, he said, it is finished. I'm done. Where is my wife? Where is my bride? So I'm going to help someone and say If you want to please God, don't talk Mount Sinai. You have to talk Mount Calvary. Because Mount Calvary is where he showcases the glory of his son. The power of his son to ransom and redeem a people. And the Lord Jesus even prayed this in John 12, 27 and 28. John 12, 27 and 28. He said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. To the hour of the cross. For this purpose, Jesus did not come to just heal people. He defines his purpose. His purpose was in this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. (laughs) Glorify your name in my crucifixion. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. That's wonderful stuff. Like God speaking to you like that, you say one thing and he answers. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
John 13, 31 to 32, building on the same matter of glory. John 13, 31, 32. So when he, when Judas Iscariot had gone out, he had been given the morsel of bread and he had gone out to betray Jesus. Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. So this is Jesus thinking about the whole matter of the cross. He is not going there thinking he is a victim. He is going there and saying this is a momentous occasion that he has been waiting for from all of eternity. He has come to glorify the Father and to be glorified in his crucifixion as he delivered his people. Jesus was not just being put on the cross to be put on the cross, to show that he is a macho man. I don't know if you watched wrestling. It was a dude back in the day, the days of Hulk Hogan. This is a macho man too. <laughs> and we loved him. You could not send us to do anything when wrestling was showing. Okay, that was illegal. You could not do that. <laughs> Jesus did not come to show that he was a macho man. He was coming to glorify the Father in righteousness, in the redemption, justification of his bride. But hear this. But because Othiniel took the city, Because the Lord Jesus took the city, there's no elect person who is still under God's condemnation. Just because they do not know it yet. That is unacceptable. That is Arminianism. That is free will theology. Why? Because knowing about Othniel was never the condition of anyone getting married to him. The condition was stated by the father, by Caleb. It was whoever takes the city will get my daughter, period. Caleb did not ask his daughter to go check out Othniel's Instagram profile to see if he was cute and handsome. <laughs> Just as knowing about David was not the condition for Saul's daughter to get him married to him, that was not ever mentioned as a condition. The condition was set between the father of the daughter. The condition was set by the father of the daughter and imposed on the man to marry her. Kill the Philistine. Kill Goliath. And my daughter and riches shall be yours. That's the condition of salvation. In other words, 
Salvation is a transaction and an agreement between God the Father alone and the Son. They are the two parties to the agreement. They are the two parties to the covenant. We do not meet any conditions in ourselves to cause this to happen. We are only brought to the truth of that arrangement that we have already been given to another. We belong to another. We are possessed by another who perfected us by his death. That's what preaching is about. Preaching is not to cause anyone to be saved. It is for the calling of those that were given to the son in marriage because of his sacrifice. They were already known to him. They were given him by the father before the foundation of the world because the daughters always belonged to the father, but they needed to be redeemed. Verse 17, again, of Joshua 15. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him Achsa, his daughter, and his wife. See that Caleb was an uncle to Othniel. As his brother, Kenaz, was a brother of, of, of Caleb. That's very strange. Why would God sanction such a relationship and make it legitimate? Because he was preaching a much bigger story of the relationship between him, Christ, and the church. And saying, this is not a marriage of strangers in the bigger scheme of salvation. All who are involved in this transaction already have a strong relationship. They have a strong bond and are loved. God loved the church. God loved the elect. God loved the son. And the son loved the church. Right from the beginning of, from before the foundation of the world, as Samson said to his parents, you go get me that Philistine woman because she pleases me well. I love her. Like, oh, no, but she's uncircumcised. Like, I don't care. I love her. She pleases me well. <laughs> so Caleb was related to Kenaz by blood. And thus to Othniel also by blood. Also related to his daughter by blood. So this is a blood relationship going on. But for a gospel testimony. And so Christ Jesus is related to the Father, God the Father, through his spiritual DNA, so that would be the equivalent of his blood. As the Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, that's the language of John, 
And it is this relationship to the Father that qualified him to be the right man for the Father's daughter, to be the one qualified and trusted by the Father to be given the responsibility as the surety and substitute. And God says, you go and redeem my daughter. Can you take the mission? And the Lord Jesus said, yes, sir. (laughs) And being related to God this way, Christ Jesus also knew exactly what was required. He understood the conditions to be met for us to be brought to God in salvation. Christ understood this. There's no man or woman on this planet who understands exactly what God required. Only Christ knew. So that made him very preeminently qualified to be our Redeemer. So he was to be our ransom and justification from sin and death and condemnation. So this matter that we're speaking, we cannot figure it out naturally. It has to be revealed to us. Also, see that the daughter was related to the father by blood, as I said. And the church was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. She is the father's daughter. And that means always loved with the father, even if she did not clean up her room. Sometimes I go into my girls' rooms and like, oh my goodness, me. A hurricane has passed through. (laughs) But they're my daughters still. So the church is also related to God by the blood of his son. And when the father sees the blood of his son, his familiar blood, he says, I will pass over her in judgment. Because it is blood that I recognize the merit of. God recognizes the merit of the blood of his son, that it is no ordinary blood. It is blood that has value to redeem. Okay? So Othniel took it and he, Caleb, gave him his daughter as wife. See this. Achsa was the only daughter of Caleb. The church was and is the only daughter of God. Because there's only one church of both Jew and Gentile, of every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. There's only but one body of Christ. And she was given to Othniel on account of his success on the battlefield. The requirement of taking the city had been met. As David got got Saul's daughter on account of his success on the battlefield. Christ Jesus thus was given the church by the Father for full possession because he finished the work that was given him to do. He met every jot and tittle 
who have possession of the church as his bride. And when he went back to the father, he did not go empty-handed. He went back with a bride completely justified, completely cleaned up to show to the father, to say, I got her whom you, whom you chose for me. He prayed in John 17 and said, all that you gave to me, I have kept them. I lost none except the son of perdition that the scriptures may be fulfilled. So Christ did not lose any of the ones that were given him. So what have we done? What has God done in these scriptures? He has taken us to the plan of salvation as he conceived it from eternity and said, this is the condition for my daughter, the church, to be taken in marriage to my son. She needs to be married. She shall not ever remain lonely in eternity. She needs to be married to a real man and I'm going to test him out by giving him an assignment. Go and capture the city for me, even if it leads to death. And if you die, I'm going to resurrect you from the dead. That's how important the daughter is to the father. Christ Jesus, if you want the bride, my daughter, you go and take up human flesh and ransom her with your own blood. And so that has been done, and that is the gospel declaration that we were ransomed, we were justified, redeemed, the city was taken. But what happens next? Verse 16, verse 18, verse 18 of Joshua 15, that's going to be our last verse. Uh, no, it's not our last verse. <laughs> now it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field so after all this the girl had some demands she's not a cheap girl she came to Othniel and asked him to go mediate for her to her father and ask for a field in other words she also wants some inheritance. Why? Because all who are married to Christ have an inheritance from the father. But it comes through the intercession of the husband. <laughs> the intercession of Christ is the father. Why don't you just go to the father? No, she goes to her husband and says, you go talk to my dad because I need me some 200 acres of land. <laughs> All our inheritance comes through the intercession of Christ and not of Mary. Because Christ is our husband, also our mediator, because all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. So she dismounted from a donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? She answered, 
Give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. So she has some other request. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. What is that about? She has the land, but the land is useless if there's no water to <laughs> for her agriculture to water her crops. She is also asking for springs of water. The father has it all. The girl needs some water. Not just for taking a shower. She's thirsty. Like the Samaritan woman who was also a daughter of the father to be given to the son. Hear the conversation between Sister Samaritan and her husband-to-be, Christ Jesus, because as I have said before, this was a date between Christ and the sister. We did not invent deaths. John 4, 13 to 15. John 4, 13 to 15. Jesus is at the well with the woman, the 12 had been sent away to buy some bread so that they would not mess up the, the date. Okay. Give them something to do. You guys go get some bread. I'm like, Jesus, you fed 5,000 people with two loaves. So what up with us going to buy bread now? No, you go away because I have a date with this Samaritan girl. So in the back and forth conversation with Jesus, the sister is trying to size up Jesus. Like, okay, so who is this person? Who is this Jew who's coming and playing nice with me, a Gentile woman who is despised, a Samaritan? And she, of course, has some theology to say. <laughs> well, we have this wealth from our fathers, our father Jacob gave us this well, and he drank it, drank from it himself. What do you say? Are you higher than Jacob? Sam, Jacob, where are you? Where do I place you? And Jesus says to the woman to give a perspective. That the water that you gave from Jacob has issues. That's why he's still coming. Never satisfied. Okay. So let's take the conversation from there. And I'll tell you of a different water. You definitely need some water, girl, but not for your flowers. <laughs> you need a different kind of water. And so Jesus says, verse 18, we have a drinks of this water with us again. But we have a drinks of the water that I shall give him who never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That's the kind of water that Christ gives. And the woman said to him, Sir, what a wonderful idea. It's too hot out here. <laughs> Save me from coming to fetch water in the heat of the day, give me this water that I may not thirst 
nor come here to draw. If possible, come to my house and give me some indoor plumbing. And Jesus says, oh, that's what I've just done. I'm going to do some indoor plumbing, not at your house, but in your heart. It's going to flow right from within you. That's your indoor plumbing. Give me this Holy Spirit. That's the command. Give me these springs of water too, so that I may not thirst. That's a command by the woman to Jesus. Give me these springs of water because I have the land, but I'm thirsting still. But what is that saying? What water is she asking from the Father? It is none other than the Holy Spirit. Because all who have been given to the Son, who have been given to Othniel, redeemed by the Son, also get the inheritance, and with that, the Holy Spirit of promise. So you just don't get the land, you also get the Holy Spirit of promise. And that is why the daughter of Caleb say, Oh, I also need springs of water with the land. Otherwise, I'm just going to be dry. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. Luke 11, 9 to 13. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for, for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, Jesus, be nice to people. <laughs> just turn it around I'm like okay the conversation was going well but what's up with verse 18 why are you calling us evil if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him all those who are married and are redeemed by Christ we will have the Holy Spirit. And if they seem to us to be given the Holy Spirit, it is not in the Pentecostal way, but because it is God, the Spirit, already in them and praying through them and saying, give us the springs of water. We do not cause the Holy Spirit to be in anyone. It is God himself doing it. So the giving of the springs of water are happening as a result of the marriage that has been consummated, as a result of her redemption, her salvation. It is God's Pentecost. This is preaching salvation after the cross. That's the ordering of events. Pay attention to that. 
she did not begin by asking for water right at the very top. No. So after the city has been taken, after she's been married, now she wants the springs. The giving of the waters is God's Pentecost, the aftermath of a finished redemption. Goliath has been slain. Christ has been glorified in his death and resurrection. And his death was the condition not just of marriage to the father's daughter, but also the giving of the Holy Spirit as a seal and permanent possession by the redeemed. It is in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is given to the church as a seal and as a permanent possession. And some people come and argue and say, well, the Old Testament saints, did they not have the Holy Spirit? Yes and no. The Holy Spirit did not indwell them. He came to inspire, but he did not indwell as a permanent possession. Why? Because of John. John 7, 37 to 39. John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, that is the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. That's in the future. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what does that mean from what we have learned from Jesus? Because he had not yet been crucified. The Holy Spirit then was given to endure permanently in the wake of the death of Christ. He even said it himself in the book of John that if I do not go to the Father, then I cannot send you the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because as Numbers 21 taught us, the water from the rock gushed out only after it had been smitten by Moses' rod. And that to say Christ smitten on the cross and the waters of salvation flowed and with that the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is given as a seal and a guarantee permanent possession after the Christ has been glorified. So what is the conclusion of the matter? Joshua 15, verse 20. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. This was the inheritance and is the inheritance of all who belong to the family of Christ. Redeemed by his blood. His sacrifice and given 
as bride to Christ. The daughter of the father has been justified, has been perfected. She's married. She has a husband. She has legal papers to prove her marriage to Christ. She has the blood of Christ. She has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus as her inheritance. She has the land, the springs of water were granted her. She has the Holy Spirit and all of God's promises. And that is the flaw and unfolding of God's salvation plan in the story of Caleb. The promise that whoever takes the land captures the city. Caleb would have gone and captured himself. Because he had proven it already. He could do it. But he comes up with this idea because God is the one preaching Christ and unfolding his plan. So the ordering of things in the matter of salvation, this is how you're supposed to think salvation. That's why uh, what a lot of people, professing Christians and preachers, say, they say a lot of things that don't add up. They don't make sense because it's confused. This is where things begin. It begins with God. And it unfolds and also it ends with him because he is the Alpha and the Omega. So the promise and the conditions to be met to get the father's daughter. So the daughter is there chosen by grace from before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ. This is what is happening before the creation. And the conditions take the city. Go and fight. Defeat the Philistines. The Philistines represent sin, death, condemnation. But these are what are warring against God's people. So you go and you fight. Take the city. And if you succeed, my daughter is yours. The riches, the glory is yours. And now to the gospel declaration, the city was taken. The city was taken. Othniel took it. Christ came and took it. And thus he also took the bride. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's John's teaching. Christ has the bride. So the bride is not leaving her father empty Handed, the bride does not leave the father, her father, empty-handed. She got something. She got a land inheritance and springs of water, which were just types and shadows of our spiritual blessings in Christ. Okay? So we have all those things given already in Christ. So the whole promise that God gave through the testimony of Caleb was fulfilled in Christ and the church. The reality of it has been accomplished in Christ and the church. 
Christ took this city and we have everything that Christ has. That's God's testimony and it's amen and we are done. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these wonderful words that you've given us from Joshua 15 about the matter of your purpose in Christ to give a daughter to him, the church, but by way of his sacrifice, by way of his death, and also to bless the church so formed from his side to give her an inheritance and springs of water, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this wonderful understanding. I pray that as many as are called will hear the message and glorify Christ Jesus for his sacrifice. We honor you, glorify you for things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people, God's people, good people. You daughters of Caleb. <laughs> you have the land and you have the springs of water. If you don't have the springs of water, go ask your father. He's faithful. He won't give you a scorpion. He'll give you the wonderful things. But remember what I said earlier, I won't be available for the rest of this year, but messages will be coming as soon as I am able to make them available when I go to Kenya and Zimbabwe be praying for me. And if you have anything that you want to give me, you can message me. There's a lot of work. So prayers appreciated. Okay. We'll see you later.